Well, brethren, it's a real joy for me to be with you at uh, this preaching seminar, uh, something I love to do back home, primarily because when you minister to ministers, they go back to minister to their own people. There is a multiplication factor. So whatever the number is here looks a little bit around the number 80. Um, you can be sure that the benefit here will have a rippling effect in due season if we all truly uh, benefit from uh, the subject that is on our hands. Let me give you a little bit of the lay of the land, the way I hope we will proceed. Uh, in this first session, we'll be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, more specifically verse, um, verse 2. But um, I hope to just enable us to appreciate the, the principle of uh, preaching uh, Christ or Christ centered preaching. And then in the second session, my desire is uh, to have a more um, sort of uh, workshop type approach where I, I want to answer the question of the difficulty that we normally have in dealing with Old Testament passages. I think Christ-centered preaching in the New Testament, if you fail that, you ought to, to quit the ministry altogether. Uh, Jesus is too obviously there in the text. Uh, I think most of us have difficulties uh, with the Old Testament and end up with all kinds of weird typology and, and so forth, or abandon that altogether and instead moralize. You know, David was a good guy, be good as well kind of thing. And so I, I want to spend a little bit more time just helping those of us who struggle there to, to be able to, uh, with integrity, preach Christ in those passages where he is not too obviously present uh, for a casual Bible reader. So that's really the way I want us to proceed. And then um, I've been assured there will be a Q&A somewhere in the midst of all this. Uh, so my counsel is if anything isn't clear, if what I've said is still leaving you hanging, please let's use the time together to ask questions and uh, I'll see what I could, would be able to do. All right. So if the first session sounds like um, uh, just preaching a sermon to the congregation, it's because it's a little difficult to teach an old dog new tricks. Uh, <laughs> that's what I do for a living. Uh, and so we might uh, end up thinking that's all I'm doing. But I hope by giving you an idea of the way we will proceed, you will then um, realize that uh, I, I still intend to, as it were, get into the jungle and use sniper fire uh, to clear some of those enemies that you tend to face in your sermon preparation. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and uh, we will read the first five verses, the first five verses. And while you are there, let me state that often when I am given the opportunity to uh, speak to fellow pastors about preaching, it's invariable that I, I want to speak about Christ. And so when this was given to me as a theme or topic, um, my heart immediately said, yes, uh, because that's really what I want to do. Because for me, it's the first thing. Uh, we can then go on to talk about other things. Uh, but really, if we are not as preachers preaching Christ, then whatever those other things might be, they become irrelevant. Uh, they, they are stealing away, in fact, from him who ought to be central. And uh, my heartache is that 
many times when um, I listen to what is supposed to be Christian preaching, especially when it is on either YouTube or radio or television, especially the latter two back home, Christ is conspicuous by his absence. It's the kind of messages which if you delivered in um, a, a, a Muslim mosque, you would still get away with it. Uh, simply because it's just telling people how to be good, uh, to be good neighbors, and, and, and so on. And sometimes it's not even how to be good, it's more a formula of how to become rich that you are being given, uh, basically how to be happy. In other words, it's all for yourself, uh, some sort of consumer mentality that is being fed. I think it's important uh, for us to get back uh, to preaching Christ. And um, the Apostle Paul is the perfect example and illustration. And that's what we see in this text. He says there, um, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, the context in which these words are to be found. The, the Apostle Paul, in writing this letter to the Corinthians, was, for lack of a better term, heartbroken. He was heartbroken because the church was terribly divided and was terribly divided around preachers. And Paul could not stomach that because the church is not about preachers but about Christ. And consequently, he reminded them about his own resolve, that the way he carried out his ministry when he was in uh, Corinth was with a very self-effacing attitude, uh, where it was possible for him to allow others to do ministry, he took two steps back to allow them to do so. And so, for instance, with respect to baptism, he says in verse 14 of the first chapter, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then later he remembers he baptized one more person. But, you know, we all tend to forget things like that if they were not a major aspect of what we are seeking to do. And so clearly, Paul was seeking to, to say to the, the Corinthians, it's wrong for any of you to make much of me as a person, as though there's something unique, special, even divine about my being that must make you say he is the one we follow and we are in the right team. Now the mentality in Corinth, uh, at least in the Greek world and Roman world in those days, is, is something you can understand because um, it, it, it was about who the great orators were, the great philosophers were. And then you were known to be followers of those orators and philosophers. That was the, the atmosphere in um, the known world at that time 
in which the gospel made an entrance in which Paul was preaching. And so towards the end of chapter 2, for instance, rather chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says in verse 22, for Jews demand Greeks, I'm sorry, Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom or philosophical understanding. He had mentioned it earlier in verse 20 when he said, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? That's just the way they thought that these are the messiahs. These are the ones who will take us into success, progress, and utopia. But as the Apostle Paul goes on to say there, he did not succumb to that mentality. He says in verse 24, but to those, uh, sorry, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. So they are seeking signs, they are seeking wisdom, but instead we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to one and folly to the other. Paul preached Christ crucified, which went against the grain. He swam against the tide. But it's very clear that it was a decision he intelligently made. And the reason he gives us in verse uh, 24 and verse 25. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's why we are preaching Christ crucified. Because he is the one who saves. Or as he puts it in verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Which leads us to our text. Because in our text, he's simply coming back to all that he has said in chapter 1, but he is now simply summarizing. And I love the way he puts it. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers. He's recalling his visit to Corinth, his evangelistic visit, his missionary visit. And he says, when I came, I did not come with the mindset of the world, which was to proclaim to you God's testimony with lofty speech and wisdom. In other words, that same mindset of oratorical philosophers said, I didn't do it. Now, you'll agree with me that that's what has become popular in the Christian pulpit. It's individuals who have a great ability to play with words. Nice cliches, quotable statements that make you go, wow, that's clever. And out of all that, they become nothing more than motivational speakers. That's all. So that at the end of everything they say, when you now pause and say, okay, where is Christ in all this? As I said, he's conspicuous for his absence. Paul says, for me, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, which I'll come to in a moment. He speaks again about this aspect of human weakness and says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. In other words, I did not present myself on the pulpit with, or wherever it was he was preaching in the marketplace with the kind of persona that makes you immediately go, wow, who is this? 
as the orators would often do. But instead, I relied on the Holy Spirit because he alone takes the gospel and uses it to give life to the dead. And that's what you see in verse 4 and verse 5. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, and here it is, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that when I'm gone, it's not Paul the great preacher, but Christ the great Savior that remains on your mind. And that's really what we ought to do. Uh, I want to spend the rest of uh, this first session in what Paul says in the second verse. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. First of all, I want to suggest to you that Paul preached Christ to himself. In other words, our first task is to preach Christ to ourselves, which is where we ought to begin, because we cannot commend to others a Christ we do not know. We can't. And as you make your way, for instance, through, uh, say, Philippians, which the Apostle Paul wrote from prison, and yet it's the most joyous epistle that has ever written, you are moved by the expressions that the Apostle Paul makes with respect to what Jesus means to him. And I want us to quickly peep there. I've got at least three uh, passages or verses from Philippians. Uh, one is uh, Philippians 1.21. Philippians 1.21. And all I want us to do here is to capture something of how Paul knew Christ in terms of the, the atmosphere, the emotion. And then to ask ourselves, does this represent anything concerning my own emotion with respect to Christ? In chapter 1 and verse 21, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. At this point, he's, he's speaking about his hope for the future. Whether he, the, the brethren ought to pray for him to be delivered out of prison, in other words, to be restored to them, or to be delivered out of prison in order to go to glory. And basically, his answer is, I'm not quite sure which of the two you should be praying for. The reason is that for, to me, to live here on earth, there's only one agenda. Christ, Christ, Christ. That's all. And then for me to go to heaven is clearly to go to my reward. It's that first part that I really want us to be challenged about. Does it represent us? Can you honestly say that for to me to live is Christ? That he's my all-consuming passion. That as I live it's Christ. As I preach, it's Christ. If you take away my preaching ministry, 
and leave me with Christ, you've still done me a great favor. It's Christ. And even when he speaks about that reward, look at the way he puts it in verse 23. For I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, and notice, and be with Christ. So even that reward, that gain, is not the streets of gold or some major mansion. It's still Christ. And we seriously need to be challenged about that. Let's go to chapter 3. And verse 8. Chapter 3 and verse 8. I begin with verse 7. But whatever gain I had, and he's talking about his outstanding curriculum vitae, his achievements, he says, whatever it is that was to my gain, which he's given in his resume, just a few those verses prior to this, I count, counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And then he says, and this, this is again the atmosphere, indeed, I count everything as loss, I deliberately count it as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, it's not like somebody snatched it out of my hands. No, I took that powerful resume, opened a trash can, and threw it in there. So that with both hands, I might embrace Christ. In fact, the appropriate rendering there um, is that I consider it Dung, cow dung, refuse compared to the excellence, the beauty, the magnificence of knowing Christ. Again, I want to ask, is that the, the emotion in our being? Because without that, everything else we'll be talking about here will be like pouring water on a duck's back. You just do this once and it's gone. It won't be internalized. It won't be you. And then one more. And that is two verses after this. And it is verse 10. I love the older rendering of this verse. Oh, that I might know him. Oh, that I may know him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Is that your desire? And here is Paul in prison, having served the Lord for so many years, and yet he is saying, I want to know Christ. This is not a young convert, fresh out of the world, still with uh, the trappings of a newborn baby on him. This is a mature servant of the Lord who has written some of the most powerful epistles that we can ever read, and he says, I want to know Christ. So really, I want us to be challenged about that, because going back to our text, the Apostle Paul is saying, for I decided to know nothing among you. He's not saying I decided to preach nothing among you, but I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, he's talking about preaching. I'll come to that in a moment. But notice what he is saying. It was that even as I come into Corinth, there is one person 
I'm in love with, one person I want to continue in a relationship with, and consequently, one person I want to share with you. Christ. I fear, and I'm willing to be wrong, but I fear that one reason why many individuals do not preach Christ is that they don't know him. That they jumped into the church as it were through the back window. And because they've never really seen something of his beauty, his sufficiency, there's nothing in their souls that says, declare him to others. Nothing. And I pray that none of us in here answers to that description. But that we have come into the Christian church through repentance and faith in Christ. That we know that he saved us. We should not be those individuals who on the last day he will be saying, get away from me, I never knew you. We never met on earth. So get away from me, you worker of iniquity. But then, even those of us who have come to know him, it's possible that as preachers we've allowed the world to replace Christ in our lives so that we are no longer in love with him. Everything else, perhaps the, the building of a personal empire, has so captivated us that Christ has been pushed out of our lives and consequently pushed out of our ministry. There's a story told, and most of you will know this, uh, of uh, the Arabian camel. And it's a story of a, a cam uh, an Arab who was going through the desert with his camel, and at night he pitched up his little tent and uh, began to, um, to warm himself in it in order to go to sleep. And while he was uh, sleeping, he, he felt something cold sort of pushing against his face. And when he opened his eyes, it was his camel. It had put its head into that tent. And so he thought, well, yeah, let's, let's give it space. After all, it also wants to be warm in here. So he moved a little bit. Uh, before long, as you know, the camel has quite a long neck. It, it, it pushed further. And he found himself in a little corner of the tent because it had pushed in its entire neck into the tent. Well, again, he reasoned, well, at least I'm still in the tent. And so he allowed his poor camel a bit of warmth. Well, suddenly he felt very cold. When he opened his eyes, he was outside the tent. And instead, the camel had its hunchback inside the tent and had occupied the whole tent. Um, often, that's the way the world replaces Christ in our lives. We, we make legitimate excuses for so many other things. And in the process, slowly but surely, Jesus is pushed out. And you can see it from the sermons we now begin to preach. That it's no longer really about him. It's about whatever that new agenda is that has preoccupied our hearts and our attention. So, our task is not only to know him in a saving way, but to continue 
learning about his person and his work. To be preoccupied with Christ himself. Applying everything we are learning about him to ourselves. So that we might grow in him more and more. So that's the first task that we have. To know Christ. To know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's a little chorus we used to sing in our earlier days as Christians. I keep falling in love with him. Over and over over and over again. He gets sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. Oh, what a love between the Lord and I. I keep falling in love with him over and over and over again. I pray that that's true about you. That even in saving him 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, I don't know how many years you've been saving the Lord, that you are still able to testify that you are in a genuine love relationship with your bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. But let's hurry on, because I, I really want us to quickly cover the next two points. Um, the Apostle Paul was determined to know Christ in his evangelistic preaching, in his evangelistic preaching, which is the second point I want us to consider. It's very clear that that's what he, he had in mind here by the phrase, and I, when I came to you, did not proclaim to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. It's clear he's speaking about the proclaiming of Christ. And since he's speaking about when I came to you, he came in an evangelistic way. And his concern was to plant Christ in the hearts of those who were listening to him. I love the way in which he pictures his own evangelistic preaching um, in Galatians chapter 3 as he is writing to the Galatians. He uses picture language there, but I love it. Galatians 3 and verse 1. He says there, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, I love that. The fact that he's saying before your eyes. You, you would think that he, he was putting up a drawing in front of their eyes. But what he really means is that if you were to picture my preaching, it was as though I was holding up a huge banner before your eyes. And on that banner, there was only one item, Christ crucified. There weren't any other details there. So he's saying, for you to now be concentrating on something other than Jesus Christ and him crucified, somebody should have bewitched you. That's the only explanation. I cannot explain it any other way. Because while I was with you to go into the realm of music and guitars, I, I had a one-stringed banjo that I was playing throughout. Christ crucified. Christ crucified. So how come you're now dancing to, to a different instrument? Who has bewitched you? Now, that should be our model. That in our evangelistic preaching, 
it should be offering this Savior to sinners. We should not try to win people into our church any other way. Because in the process, all we are doing is developing, uh, in Zambia we call it a mortuary. Do you call it a morgue here? You know, where you keep the dead? Yeah, that's really what you'll be developing in the, in the end. Rather than developing a, 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 an army of individuals that are alive and wanting to save this Christ. The reason why Paul did this, he tells us in, in chapter 3, back to First um, uh, Corinthians, in chapter 3 and um, verse 11, it's, it's my, the, the favorite text I use when I'm autographing books. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Any other foundation is sinking sand. If your people make some kind of profession of faith and it's not solidly based on the person and work of Christ, well, number one, they're not likely to last long, but number two, they're not going to heaven. Wherever else they might go, it won't be heaven. It has to be Christ. Now, brethren, there are many times back home approximately 80% of Zambians claim to be Christians. I hear it's a little bit like that in the U.S. 80%. In other words, four out of every five individuals that I witness to, when I ask them whether they are Christians, they will say yes. Previously, it used to be purely in terms of, you know, I was baptized in the church or I sing in the choir or, um, you know, I, I, I give money in the church and so on. It usually used to be along those lines. Today, it's also, you know, I, I had problems and I went to the man of God. He prayed for me and, okay, the problems haven't completely gone away, but I've been assured they will be going away and so on. So that's how come uh, I'm now uh, a Christian. And the problems could be anything. Uh, problematic marriage, failure to have children, uh, failure to get your business to thrive, or even just get a job, um, failure in health, and so on. The man of God has done this. But notice that in all these, Christ is again conspicuous by his absence. It's everything else but Christ. Some individuals, they, they, they notice that I'm still waiting for, for some answer. So they've gone through the entire menu and I'm still waiting. So they sort of go, ah, yeah. And I also accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. No, no, no. He cannot be under any other business. He must be the one that individuals squarely put their hope on. As the hymn writer says, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That's all. And we ought to ensure that in our evangelistic preaching, we are driving people to Christ and to Christ alone. Let me quickly go on to the second area uh, of application. And that is the Apostle Paul's Christ-centered preaching did not stop with his evangelistic work. He was also preaching Christ to believers, which we must also do. We must be preaching Christ to believers as well. 
Now, the, the, I don't know whether you've ever done this exercise. I've done it a few times, especially in, in seminars like this. I would say to pastors, between Romans 1 and Philemon, just open any page and see if Jesus is missing there. In fact, you keep finding in Christ, through Christ, for Christ. I mean, this Christ, Christ, Christ throughout. And it's because Paul cannot counsel believers about anything without making them see that what they need is the person and work of Christ. Try it out. Sadly, that's not what we are finding when we are listening to pastors preaching to Christians or even counseling Christians. I recall uh, speaking to a couple uh, that came to see me because they were having major problems in their marriage. And after they finished sharing, I said to them, but have you seen your pastor? And they said, yes. We've seen him. He counseled us. I said to them, what did he tell you to do? The only thing they recalled was that the pastor instructed the man to take his wife out for a candlelight dinner. And I said, and that's meant to solve this crisis? <laughs> and he said, yes. Now, from what I could see, Ephesians 5 was being violated in that marriage. And that's what they needed to get back to. So I remember saying to the man, here is your challenge. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Amen. And that's a high mountain to climb. Are you even attempting to do this? And you could see from the expression on his face, that he doesn't even want to. And of course, I turned to the wife and said exactly the same thing. Submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ. Again, it's Christ, Christ, Christ. She was quick to say, look, I'm trying, but hey, a guy like this? <laughs> Submitting to a guy like this? Let him love me first. <laughs> so a candlelight dinner was not going to solve that. They've since divorced. You see, it must be Christ. And if we know him and seek to love him, then in many ways he becomes our role model. And we begin to see various ways in which we profit from his example. John 16, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks about the work that the Holy Spirit was coming to do. And he puts it this way. John 16, verse 12 to verse 15, and then I really must hurry on. No, no, I have one more text, and then I must hurry on to, to close. John 16 and verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So just take note of that all the truth. Now notice. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Notice verse 14, which is what all the truth is. 
He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. For all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Truths about me that are meant for your spiritual good, that's what the Spirit of God will declare. And he ought to do it through us as preachers. God's people need to build their lives on Christ, which is why Colossians 2 is uh, a good place for me to conclude at least this section of uh, uh, my message, us preaching to um, believers. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Colossians, was very concerned about the fact that there were teachers in Coloss who were basically teaching that although it's right to begin with Christ, your spiritual life, you then need these extras for you to grow in. And they had a lot of extras. What the Apostle Paul says in verse 6 is that in fact, you begin with Christ and you continue with Christ. Your spiritual life is to be built on Jesus Christ. Colossians 2 and verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then he says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, which is what a lot of the motivation of speaking is all about. It's sheer worldly common sense. And sometimes it's not even common sense, it's a lie. Deceitfulness. But listen to this. Empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and here it is, and not according to Christ. And that's why we are challenged as preachers to help build the lives of God's people on Christ. Well, let me quickly say as I close that... Um, we need to be like Paul. We need to have his example. Because Christianity has been plagued by too much or too many personality cults. I belong to this and I belong to this guy and so on and so forth. Um, we need to, to swim against the tide. We need to be the kind of preachers who... God's people will thank us because we did not only preach Christ to them, but we left them loving the Christ even all the more. Because of the knowledge they had of him. Back to that passage in 1 Corinthians 3 where I read uh, verse 11. The Apostle Paul says in verse 12, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hair, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Brethren, we do have a, an a judgment to undergo for the work that we are doing. And may it be that when our work is tested, it will be found to have been of durable substance. Amen. And that's Christ alone. Christ alone.
It was George Whitfield who cried out towards the end of his ministry, let the name of Whitfield perish, but Jesus live forever. And it was at a time when there was a lot of squabbling between those that were benefiting from his ministry and those that were benefiting from the ministries of the Wesleys. And there was a lot of pressure for him to, to somehow gain a greater following because a number of individuals were, as it were, crossing over. And Whitfield completely refused. What he wanted was to simply proclaim Christ, even if he is forgotten for the rest of history. Let's save that attitude so that as men and women listen to us, they'll go home saying, not what a great preacher he is, but what a great savior Jesus is. Because we put Christ before them. Oh, finally, the words of John the Baptist, isn't it? Let me decrease. Let him increase. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us to have Christ centered preaching. That that might be the regular appetite, regular menu for ourselves, but also for our people. That they may truly rejoice in the unsearchable riches of Christ. That they may continue to be overwhelmed by the height and breadth and length and the depth of the love of God in Christ Jesus. Oh Lord, help us to do just that for we know that soon you will call us before yourself to give an account for the work you've given us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.